Would you turn, please, to Mark's Gospel in chapter 9 as we prepare for the preaching of God's Word. That's Mark in chapter 9. I'll read verses 2 through 13. This is the same set of verses that we read last week. This week, however, we'll be focusing on the last half of this. Last week we focused on the first half. This week is on the last half. And as we come to God's word, would you please pray with me? Our God, as we come now before your word, we are humbled, realizing that we are coming before the Lord of all things. And in that sense, how dare we ask of you to know you at all, and yet we do ask that. We do want to know you. We want to know what's true about you. We want to know what's true of your world. Lord, would you help us by your Spirit to see you, and as a result of this, to trust you, to be strengthened, to follow you as your disciples. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you want to follow with me, this is Mark chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 2 and reading through the end of 13. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's word. So just as a reminder here, if you were with us last week, this first handful of verses, we focused on this section where Jesus is transfigured or metamorphized, just like a caterpillar would be into a butterfly, that Jesus was changed in some way that these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were able to see for just a moment a glimpse of the full glory and deity of Christ. 
And this is a big deal, a huge deal. In some ways, even a bigger deal than even the resurrection is, because in the resurrection we see the power of Jesus, but in the transfiguration we see the holiness, the glory of God. So, they've had this experience, and that's what we talked about last week. This week now, these three disciples are coming down the mountain with Jesus, and they're talking about what had just happened and going, what does this mean? Verse uh, 11, then, they, they ask this question of Jesus. They say, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So here, just a little bit of context, they're talking about what the Old Testament describes as the day of the Lord. So this is a day in which the Lord would come and bring two things at the same time. One, judgment over evil and sin, and salvation for all of the Lord's people. This is the day of the Lord, judgment over sin and salvation for the Lord's people. And the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, leans forward into this, looking for the day of the Lord and looking for the one, the Messiah, who would bring this day of the Lord. So when they're talking about this first Elijah must come, they're actually referencing a particular place in the Old Testament, and we have to look there first. If you'll turn backward to me to um, Malachi in chapter 4. So this is the book directly before Matthew. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So it's the note that the Old Testament ends on. So this will give us some context here about this day of the Lord, this reference to Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 Starting in verse 1, this first verse gives me goosebumps here. Verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There's that note of judgment it's one of those things that should make us shudder for a moment, that should make us cry out, oh Lord, have mercy, should make us run to Jesus. So there's the note of judgment. Then hear the note of salvation in the next two verses. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. I love some of the imagery there, the heal, rising with healing in their wings, sort of very phoenixy image there, and that leaping like cattle's out of, cattle out of the stall. Some of you know exactly what that looks like when they've got this shoot that they're going through, and all of a sudden, at the end of it, they can... They can freely roam, and they do that kick when they jump out. That's the image there. So now, what does this have to do with Eli Elijah? We'll keep going. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
So there's a reference here to Elijah the prophet, and Elijah has already come. He's in First and Second Kings. We've seen him before, but there's this note that Elijah will return, and Elijah is a prophet. So if you were here with us when we preached through the book of Habakkuk, you'll remember that a prophet is the mouthpiece of God, the one that speaks on behalf of God. It's the one who makes the Lord known to his people. And this prophet Elijah is going to turn the hearts of people. It's a preparation for the coming of the Lord. So the last wedding that I was at, I was an usher. The usher, I think, is the hardest job, to be frank. They've got all the business work and other things. Everybody else just gets to stand up there and tries not to pass out and to look pretty, you know. But the usher has a lot, often has a lot of work to do. And the last thing that I had to do as an usher was right before the bride came in, and me and one other usher walked down the center aisle, and we each grabbed onto a piece of, of rope, and then walked back, and it unrolled this big, fancy, frilly carpet so that the bride could come down it. Every wedding looks different, but they had this big, fancy thing. So that's what this prophet Elijah is doing. He's rolling out the carpet to prepare the way of this Messiah who would bring the day of the Lord. And some thought, in, back in Mark, that Jesus was actually this prophet Elijah. You'll remember in chapter 8 that when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am, that some people had said, Jesus is this Elijah. So that doesn't mean that Jesus is the reincarnation of Elijah. It means that he's coming in the spirit of Elijah, in the power of Elijah, in the mission of Elijah. But Jesus says, no, I'm not the Elijah, I'm the Christ but all this shows that they've been in anticipation of this one, Elijah, who would come and prepare the day of the Lord. So now, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are coming down a mountain where they have just seen, with their own eyes, Moses and Elijah. And you've got to imagine the excitement, first of all. I mean, there's, there's a lot to process if you're seeing the embodiment of Moses and Elijah. I have no idea what I would do. I'd probably need a nap immediately after that. But they're processing all of this. And I imagine there's some discussion. Oh, okay, we've seen Elijah. Elijah has come, so now the day of the Lord must be coming. The carpet's being rolled out. You can imagine their excitement and the amount of questions that they have. And Jesus answers them here. He says in verse 12, Elijah does come first. You're right. But in 13, he corrects them just a little bit. He says in 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come but they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What does that mean? Elijah has come, but they did to him what they pleased, as it is written to him. What is Jesus talking about here? Who's the they, and what is that exactly did they do to him? Now, to us, this might sound a little cryptic, but in the same account in Matthew, it makes clear, Matthew throw this, throws this line in for clarity. He says, and they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. In other words, this Elijah, this prophet in Malachi who's prophesied as one who would come before the day of the Lord is not the man that they just saw at the transfiguration. This is John the Baptist, one who publicly had rolled out the carpet for the Messiah. 
And we know just a little bit about John the Baptist from Mark. He was in chapter 1. He was the one who said, I baptize with water, but this one who is to come will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is one who will come mightily. His sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And we get to see some of the glory there, some of the awe, some of the honor But then the other thing we know about John the Baptist and what Jesus is referencing here, that they did to him whatever they pleased, happened in chapter 6. If you were with us, you'll remember that John the Baptist was beheaded. His head was put on a platter for Herod. What they did to him was violent. So in the same moment, we're seeing this carpet being rolled out and violence. The same sort of thing is mentioned by Matthew. Hang on just a second. This is going to a particular place. Uh, This is in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 10, just a few verses here for clarity. Jesus is discussing John the Baptist. He says, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I will send my messenger before your face. He will prepare the way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words... In John the Baptist, we taste and see two things at the same time. We're seeing the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the suffering of violence. And in this text here in Mark, Jesus says the same sort of thing about himself. We're seeing two things happening simultaneously. That He talks about the rising of the dead, the restoration, there's salvation, and there will be suffering and contempt. Jesus is bundling two things together then. He's talking simultaneously about restoration and about suffering. This is true of this one, Elijah, John the Baptist. This is true of Christ himself and Here's the hard part. This is unsettling for us because all of Mark, in all of it, Jesus is calling us to follow him as disciples. So this restoration and suffering will be true of us as well. That for every Christian, we are restored and We suffer. It's that second one that's harder, the suffering. That gets to me, in part because we don't often hear about it, at least not as much as the scripture talks about it, that when we um, hear Christian things on TV or on the radio or in books, or even culturally we hear discussions about this, or even our own expectations of the Christian life, very often the emphasis is placed on restoration, And there's something good and true about that. We want to be restored. It's true that we are restored in Jesus. But somehow in the process, we stopped the discussion about suffering. We need to talk about this because Jesus 
does. Um, and the scripture does not run from this idea. In fact, it leans into it. Uh, Paul himself doesn't run from it. He even highlights it. This is in Philippians chapter 1, just a single verse here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul writes this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted, I'll read it again, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This sort of believing and suffering being bundled together. It's not the kind of verse that we typically highlight if you're that kind of person that highlights or underlines things in your Bible, you probably don't have this one underlined. I know I don't. It's, it's one that aches me a bit to look at it. But we need to know this. We need to know that this is true of us, that there will be belief and suffering, restoration and suffering, because if we don't, otherwise, we will be shaken when suffering comes because we will think that something has gone terribly wrong. The scripture seems to say otherwise. In fact, the scripture expects and even calls for some measure of suffering, so much so that there's a manual for suffering in the Bible. Uh, take note of this in your mind. First Peter, I'll read some verses from First Peter, but if you are in the throes of suffering, First Peter, in some sense, is the manual for how suffering works, how it, suffering is supposed to go. And there's some confusing parts in this. Don't get too distracted or bogged down by those. But if you're really in it, First Peter will help you. So this is First Peter chapter 4. Peter, as he talks here, talks about suffering being so prevalent in the life of a believer. Um... It's just a given. Listen to these verses. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, Peter writes this. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me paraphrase some of what I just read. 
Peter here talks about different sorts of suffering here, and he's, he critiques this suffering. Don't suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Those we would expect suffering to come from. That there needs to be justice done for someone who's a thief or a meddler or a murderer. That there should be suffering that almost comes with that. And we want to keep from these sorts of things. We want to pursue holiness by the grace of Jesus, always and only by the grace of Jesus, but to avoid these sorts of things because when suffering comes there, that is righteous suffering, just suffering. And yet, even as the Christian is pursuing holiness, that there will still be suffering, suffering that is unjust, suffering that doesn't seem to belong there. And Peter says, when this occurs, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange that that suffering comes. And almost more importantly for us in verse 16, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Now, why would he say that word? When you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. I think because there is temptation to be ashamed of our suffering. That sometimes we're embarrassed or that we're tempted to think that something has gone wrong with us in this. So we even try to hide our personal struggles. And so sometimes we deal with our suffering in various ways that may not be the healthiest ways. Sometimes we enter into what I call quiet suffering. Suffering that we keep to ourselves, behind our closed door, just within our house, and keep it very private and suffer on our own. Or we normalize our suffering. That often happens with the, slow, the long, slow burn suffering, the, the things that happen again and again and again and just keep going and will not let up and it just becomes the new normal or we think that this is just okay. Or we minimize our suffering. You can tell when that happens, when someone tells about a really hard thing but after the very hard thing, the last words are, but I'm okay. And maybe I'm okay, but maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not. And Jesus would draw all of the suffering out of the corners of life and just lay it out openly, out into the light, pulling all of it out. And he shows us then what it looks like to live then as a Christian, which involves suffering. Now, on some level, this is no surprise to us. We know this. I'm not telling you anything new on some level. Because many of us, I can probably even say all of us, know what it's like to suffer. We've all got it. We've all got our baggage. We've all got our suffering. However, if you are feeling the weight of suffering now, 
because life has its ebbs and flow, if that suffering is weighing upon you heavily, now listen to me because I'm speaking directly to you. I want you to know something. The Lord Jesus holds on to you. The Lord, the creator of the universe, holds on to you. So don't give up. This is not just a trite saying. This is not a poster of footprints in the sand where you, the one, you know all the poem. I don't have to say it. The single set of footprints, where that's where Jesus carries me. It is not trite. It, this is true. When you are suffering, know that the reason Jesus Christ himself suffered was for your sake. That the reason why he willingly submitted himself to suffering was for your sake to save and rescue and bring restoration to sinners who desperately need it. Knowing this, then, gives the Christian a great amount of freedom because two things really come out of knowing this. One, we can really let our suffering just be suffering. It's okay to call it painful, to let it hurt and really hurt. And we can trust that restoration will come that restoration is secured in Jesus. And neither one of those things drives the other out. I want to know and have confidence that restoration will come. And yet it will still hurt sometimes, sometimes even big hurts. An example of that that we see in the scripture, I love this, um, in Psalm 102. Many of the Psalms, we know who wrote them, because the writer identifies himself. Sometimes it says Solomon or Moses, or very often for most of them it's David. Sometimes the author's anonymous completely. We know nothing about him. Um, but in this psalm, we don't really know who wrote it, but the title of it in Hebrew, it's a prayer of one afflicted. This is Psalm 102. So the writer of this describes himself as one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And this is a good example to us. We'll talk about why in just a moment. Um, hear, hear the writer of this psalm, Psalm 102, starting in verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like a smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl in the wilderness. Like an owl of the white, of the, of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. 
because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Do you hear how just openly he talks about what's going on? He says, this is the situation, and I'll just plainly lay it out before the Lord. And my guess is many of us, perhaps all of us, have been there. I can read that and go, I get that. But here at verse 11 into verse 12, there's a shift in the writer. He now has openly talked about his suffering and just let the suffering be suffering. But here in 11 to 12, he shifts from the temporary to the eternal. Here again is verse 11. He writes, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations, and you will arise and have pity on Zion, for it is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. In our suffering, we can let our suffering just be painful, but at the same moment, don't forget what is true about our God that this writer says all of these very hard things, but there's those two magic words, but you, but you, Lord, are like this. You, Lord, are eternal and enthroned. We can hear in this moment that simultaneously the psalmist is suffering and trusting. And my favorite line about this comes later in verse 18, when his focus shifts not to himself nor to God, but to us believe it or not. He talks about us specifically here. Verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. That's us, by the way. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So all of this, when the psalmist is talking about his own suffering... And trusting the Lord in the midst of that suffering, the psalmist says, I want you to write this down so that people that are not yet born, people like us, that this will produce praise and worship to God. Now, here's the question for us. Why on earth would we praise in the midst of suffering? Why would we do that? Why would we worship God in suffering, it's because in suffering we are seeing something that's true about God, that we're seeing him enthroned. We're seeing him as king. We're seeing him as a, a God who saves and restored. And when we're looking at Jesus in Mark, we're seeing a God who not only saves and restores, but a God who also suffers with us. One of my favorite writers, Philip Yancey, I read this book years ago in college, Where is God When It Hurts, is the title of the book. Uh, Philip Yancey is famous for just being a very real, down-to-earth guy. And I read this during a particularly hard season, but he writes some similar things about, about this. He says, The fact that Jesus came to earth where he suffered and died does not remove pain from our lives. But it does show that God does not sit idly by 
and watch us suffer in isolation. He became one of us. Thus, in Jesus, God gives us an up-close and personal look at his response to human suffering. All of our questions about God and suffering should, in fact, be filtered through what we know about Jesus. How did God on earth respond to pain? When he met a person in pain, he was deeply moved with compassion. Not once did he say, endure your hunger, swallow your grief. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, he wept. Very often, every time when he was directly asked, he healed the pain. Sometimes he broke deep-rooted customs even to do so, as when he touched a woman with a hemorrhage of blood or when he touched outcasts, ignoring their cries of unclean. The pattern of Jesus' response should convince us that God is not a God who enjoys seeing us suffer. I doubt that Jesus' disciples tormented themselves with questions like, does God care? They had visible evidence of his concern every day. They simply looked at Jesus' face. The record of Jesus' life on earth should forever answer the question, how does God feel about our pain? In reply, God did not give us words or theories on the problem of pain. He gave us himself. A philosophy may explain difficult things, but it has no power to change them. The gospel, on the other hand, the story of Jesus' life, promises change. This change happens because Jesus gave, him, gave us himself. Jesus knows both the heights of resurrection and the depths of the grave. And so... In all of this, then, when Jesus puts out his hand and calls to us, come follow me through these fiery trials, we know, we know that we can trust him because he restores all things. And even in suffering, perhaps even especially in suffering, here we get to see a God worthy of following after, a God worthy of all of our trust, and ultimately a God who is worthy of all of our worship. Would you please pray with me? Our God, we do not need to look to your word to know that suffering is a reality of life. We just need to look around even in our own lives. We know that we wither like grass, but that you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who not only restores us and saves us and rescues sinners deeply in need of saving, but that also knows suffering. Help us, Lord, to lean on you when we suffer. And we give you all of our thanks and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.